If you have your Bibles, we'll be in James chapter 2, continuing our study in, in James. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. Chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. Before we begin, let me go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time to open up your word, to study it. We pray that your spirit would give us understanding, that we may apply it to our lives, live obediently to your truth and wisdom, that we would be sanctified by your truth and grow in Christ-likeness, that we may be an encouragement to those around us the way that we speak and the way that we act, that we may be uh, those who speak truth and love, that we may be those who correct error, that we may be those who um, admonish and encourage. And we pray that you would continue to use us as your people to do your will here on earth as we seek who you are and want to know you more. We thank you for this time. Again, teach us now, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I've titled this message, What Use Is It? What use is it? And I want you to think about that question. What use is it? Now, you need a context to apply that question to, but just to start off, what use is it? A big part of parenting is practicing consistent discipline because you love your children and because it is loving to do so, according to God's word. If your child is being disobedient and you just say, stop doing that, and they respond, okay. And five minutes later, they are doing the exact same thing you told them not to do. And again, you say, stop doing that. And they respond, okay. And a little while later, it happens again. And there's no biblical instruction, no loving discipline, no addressing the heart issues that are leading to those behaviors and any mention of God. What is happening there? What is happening in that, in that situation? You can ask, what, what use is it? What use is it to tell your child to stop doing something without the instruction, without the loving correction from God's word? And this same principle can be applied to much bigger things that are happening in the lives of our children or family members or friends as well. This is a picture of a parent who says, I love my children, who says I love my children, and I know what God's word instructs me to do, but I'm not really going to do anything about it. I'm just going to see my child who needs to be brought up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, Ephesians 6, 4, and I'm going to withhold that from them, even though I know I can provide what they need, the instruction from God's word. This is not talking about salvation. No parent can save their children, and that's clear in Scripture. That is a complete work of God's sovereign mercy and grace through Jesus Christ. But this is talking about being faithful to train up a child in the way that he should go, Proverbs 22, 6. This is what pleases God, and love for God is demonstrated through our obedience to him. So as parents, we must discipline our children and instruct them and train them up in the ways of the Lord. It is loving to do so. It is obedience to the scriptures and to God. And now we would acknowledge this example of parents and children and say, yes, it is right and loving and pleasing to God for parents to instruct and discipline their children in the ways of the Lord, no matter how uncomfortable or inconvenient or painful, or difficult it may be. But what about when we apply this to our Christian lives? What about when we apply this to faith and works? What if it has to do with a genuine saving faith? What if it has to do with 
no faith at all. This is what James talks about. Look down at verse 14. What use is it, my brethren? He's talking to Christians. If someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, again, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Saving faith is more than just words. Saving faith is more than just words. This is not talking about how you are saved. This is talking about the evidence of a saved life. Someone who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It involves words, what you say, and works, how you live. You say it, you profess it, you confess it, and you prove it. You validate it, you display it, you live it out from a heart that loves God in true obedience. Wherever there is the root of saving faith, there will always be its fruit. True saving faith will always be accompanied by good works that verify the validity of that faith and prove that it is real. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Examine to see if what you say, what you profess and confess with your mouth matches the way that you live and behave and conduct yourself. Real faith is a faith that works. It is a living faith that responds in obedience to God. A living faith will be evidenced and demonstrated by a holy life, a life of willful conformity to God's word and will, a love for righteousness, a hatred for sin. To put it another way, sinners are justified by faith in Christ alone, but true faith will never be alone. It will always be accompanied by good works, by things that please God according to his word. Ephesians 2 8 through 10, most of us know this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. We are justified by faith alone, but it is our works that justify or prove our faith to be real. James is not arguing that works must be added to faith but rather that a genuine saving faith will be characterized by works, by deeds, by a holy life. Jesus emphasized this as well. Listen to Matthew 7, 16 through 20. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits, by their words, and by their actions. Jesus says in John 15, verses 5 and 6, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. But they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. In verse 8, John 15, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Jesus also said of the good soil in Matthew 13, 23, And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. 
It's what you say and how you live. What you say and how you live. Genuine faith works, and this entire letter emphasizes that. James is broken down into 108 verses, and over half of them contain imperative commands to help believers to walk in wisdom and obedience to God. This is the lifestyle and convictions of a Christian. This is how you grow into Christian maturity. This is how you grow into Christ-likeness. And James calls all believers to live a life that demonstrates saving faith marked by godly behavior because of a love for God and therefore a love for others that's displayed through your love for God. Romans 5.5, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us, believers, born again by the Spirit of God and the Word of God. And then 1 John 4.19, we love because He first loved us. And the primary and dominant fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22, is love, the demonstration of love in and through our lives. Love characterizes the Christian life. 1 John 4.7, very plain and clear, everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And love for God is seen, how? In our obedience to his word and his will for us. So as those who are set apart by him and for him, we will view, as James taught us in James 1, we will view trials differently. We will see them as good gifts from the Father of lights who showers good gifts to his children to strengthen us, to help us to endure and persevere through these things, to make us more like Christ. We will view trials differently. We will speak differently. We will act differently. We will live differently. We will respond to people differently. We will love differently. We will treat others differently because we will be judged differently by the law of liberty. We've been freed to love God and love others. We will be judged by that law of liberty. In James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, James addressed the sin of showing partiality and its relationship to love, mercy, and judgment. And here we see it's connection with faith and works and if this lack of love if this lack of love and mercy is characteristic of your life then james wants you to consider whether your faith is real or fake because judgment chapter 2 verse 13 will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy but if you have a genuine faith it will be demonstrated by how you respond to the word and how you treat others and for you chapter 2 verse 13 Mercy triumphs over judgment because you have believed upon Christ and God's mercy is upon you. And because of God's mercy, Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, Now present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. James wants his readers to maintain to remain entirely loyal to the Lord. James wants his readers to remain entirely loyal to the Lord by obeying his word, by putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, chapter 1, verse 21, by following the wisdom from above, chapter 3, verse 16, by displaying pure and undefiled religion, chapter 1, verse 27, by fulfilling the royal law and living by the law of liberty, chapter 2, verse 8, and verse 12, rather than to compromise their loyalty by an inconsistent lifestyle, manifesting the influence of worldly wisdom, chapter 3, verse 15, living a life characterized by showing partiality, chapter 2, verse 1, and thereby deceiving themselves, deluding themselves about their spiritual status, chapter 1, verse 22. Basic to all that James says in his letter is his concern that his readers stop compromising 
with worldly values and behavior and to give themselves wholly and entirely to the Lord by living holy lives and growing into Christian maturity by their obedience to his word. That is living in wisdom. So in these verses, James makes clear what real faith is and is not so that we would know and understand the proper relationship between faith and works. The proper relationship between faith and works. And James will help us to answer the question of what use is a faith that is without works? What use is a faith that is without works? So we're going to break this down into three parts. First, the questions. Verse 14, the questions. And then the illustration, verses 15 and 16, and the point. What is the point? Verse 17. So first we'll look at verse 14, the questions. Verse 14 again reads, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? James asks, what use is it? It's right there in the beginning of the verse. What good is it? In other words, what profit is it? What gain is it? And he's addressing Christians. He says, my brethren. He's asking Christians to consider and answer these questions. He wants them to examine their lives and their actions, what they say and what they do. What they say and how they display those things within their lives is what they say consistent with, match up with, according to God's word. These rhetorical questions demand negative answers. The implied answer is, it is no use if you say you have faith, but no works. And that faith, that faith that is without works, cannot save you. You cannot say that you have a faith, but do not have works. Works being obedience to God's word, actions that demonstrate Christian love and give evidence of a genuine faith. But here, as we'll see in the illustration, James is specifically referring to acts of compassion and mercy. Acts of compassion and mercy, which are evidences of love. They're evidences of love. So notice verse 14 again. What use is it, my brethren, if someone, and this is the key part, says, says he has faith. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith? This is just merely a profession of faith, a person who claims to have faith. This is not authentic faith that is being talked about here. James does not say that this person has saving faith, but that he claims to have it. He claims to be a follower of Christ. He says that he has faith. He thinks that he does. And so this is a person who with his lips is saying, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. I'm a follower of Christ. However, this person does not have a changed life that demonstrates that. And so James' question is, what kind of faith is that? That is not saving faith. Because faith without works is a false faith, and that means that it is no faith at all. That is a straightforward spiritual truth and principle from God's word. And God's word is inerrant, infallible, authoritative, sufficient, and trustworthy. It is important for us to think rightly about this so that we can pray rightly, so that we can respond rightly, we can talk to others rightly who may be saying that they have faith but no works to prove it. And if we think wrongly about it, we may be holding on to false hope or giving others false hope. And that is not good for anyone. Jesus says in Matthew 7, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will 
of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Saving faith is more than just saying, Lord, Lord. That is why I said earlier that saving faith is more than just words. It's words that are validated through the display of your works and love for God. It's both what you say and how you live that out. This can be a difficult verse for some of us as we think about even our own lives or the lives of our children, maybe even the lives of our parents, our loved ones who have passed away, perhaps even some close friends who attend church. But again, we cannot change God's word. We cannot add to it. We cannot subtract from it. God's word is true, and this is what God's word says. A faith without works is useless. It's dead. It's no faith at all. There's no other way to explain verse 14. There's no other way to say what it clearly says and means. So what use is it? It is no use at all. Can that faith, can that faith, that faith that says it is without works, can that faith save him? No, it does not. It's no faith at all. That faith, that faith without works cannot save him. Also notice the eternal implications of this verse. The eternal implications of this verse. Can that faith save him? Save there is talking about final future salvation. That false faith will lead to the unmerciful judgment that we talked about last week. But it also has present consequences as well. Because there is no faith, there's also no sanctification. There's no growth in Christian maturity. There's no true growth in Christ-likeness. There's no death to sin. There's no heart transformation in how we speak and how we think and how we live. And this leads to a misunderstanding of the law and the gospel. This leads to a misunderstanding of faith and works. And this results in a misrepresentation of who God is and the power of the gospel to change lives and gives a bad testimony to the world. These questions reveal that if you say that you have faith but no works to prove it, to validate it, it is no use at all and you are not saved. James wants us to see this with our very own eyes and so he provides an illustration in verses 15 and 16. He stated the principle very clearly. What use is it? Can that faith save them? That faith without works? No, it cannot. And now he gives us this picture so that we can see it with our own eyes, so that we can imagine it. And we can picture it. Verses 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and let, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for the body, again, he asks, what use is that? What use is that? These verses are often pulled out of its context as a tool of manipulation by social justice warriors as a mandate for the church to be involved in cultural transformation, just to get practical with what the time we're living in now. But the problem with that is that the gospel, the gospel transforms souls eternally, whereas the social gospel, which there really isn't one, doesn't transform souls, but rather seeks to transform social status temporarily and unbiblically by redefining what true justice is. They would argue that it's the Christian's job to give material needs to the poor, that it's the church's duty and job to combat poverty by giving its resources and its assets to the poor to eliminate poverty and the social injustice in the world. And that sounds good, but that is not the mission and mandate of the church. 
And furthermore, that is not what these verses are about. These verses are not about justice, but about mercy and obedience and a living faith. So these verses do not describe the church's mission. That would be to partner together with the world in a failing mission and to add to Christ's commission. Because Jesus, who said, I will build my church, also said, the poor you will have with you always. These verses are not some social mandate for the church. We are to have compassion. We are to proclaim the gospel, which has the power to save and help when and where we can. But it first begins with the house of God. We provide for the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ. While it's not the Christian's main concern to fight poverty in the world and to fight social injustice, the Bible does specifically address neglecting the needs of the poor within the church. Within the church. And we saw that in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Chapter 2, verse 2. If a man comes into your assembly, the church gathering, the worship service with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who's wearing fine clothes and say, you sit there in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him, but you have dishonored the poor man, you have neglected to meet their needs. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? Poor Christians having their needs neglected by the Christian church, by their brothers and sisters. And James addresses that. The sin of partiality. Not loving their neighbor as themselves. Not displaying love and mercy and compassion. And here James gives us a hypothetical illustration to connect the principle that he stated in verse 14 in order to emphasize his main point that he's making. James again chooses an example of mistreatment or dishonoring of the poor in the Christian community as he did in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. He says, if a brother or sister, and the Greek word here is specifically used for those who are believers in Jesus Christ. It can speak of your own human brother or sister, but apart from that kind of relationship, in the New Testament, this word is only used without exception to refer to believers, brother or sisters in Christ. It is never used to describe those outside of the church. So this hypothetical situation implies that you recognize this person as a Christian, as a fellow brother or sister. You You can say that he or she is a recognizable member of your church. You encounter this brother or sister, and it says they are without clothing. They are without clothing. The Greek word there means naked or poorly clothed. And when the similar scene is described by Jesus in Matthew 25, there it's translated naked. So you come across this brother or sister in Christ, and they are without clothing or are inadequately clothed for public appearance or are even naked for the intended effect of this illustration. They are cold, not able to stay warm, And then it also says that they are in need of daily food. They are malnourished. They don't have enough to eat. You encounter them, and it says, look down at verse 16. One of you says to them, one of you says to them, so he's speaking to the whole church. And also notice that it says, and one of you says to them, them. There's only one person that's being talked about, but this person who's being addressed is just a single brother or sister. So they're being categorized in a separate group, all on their own. And then it says, this person says to them, go 
in peace. Go in peace. Shalom. It's a Hebrew greeting or benediction. With the grace of God. Shalom. Go with the peace of God. That's what you say to this brother or sister who is naked and starving. What a shocking thing to say. What an unbelievable thing to say. You don't do anything to help. You just pass by with some well wishes. The phrase shalom could not be more inappropriate for this context. One commentator says that it's so extremely offensive that the person who says it would be guilty of violating the third commandment, which is to take the name of the Lord in vain. John MacArthur notes that this is indicative of an attitude of total disregard for the welfare of others to the point of absurdity. And this is compounded by what this person says next. Go in peace. And then he says, be warmed and be filled. Be warmed and be fed. This is not just may the peace of God be with you, but I hope you get warm somehow and find food somewhere. Notice that by what this person says, they are indicating that they are well aware of the needs of this brother or sister. They are well aware of their needs and they're just not meeting them. And the end of verse 16, James says, what use is that? What use is that? Again, for the second time, it's no use. It's no use at all. Why? Look at the middle of verse 16. You do not give them what is necessary for their body. And that phrase, necessary for the body, is the phrase daily sustenance, daily food. And the implication is that this person is going to die because they are not fed. You're not giving him or her what they need to live. In First John three seventeen and 18, says, But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother, same word there, brother or sister in Christ, in need, and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? The answer, the love of God doesn't abide in him. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, not just with what you say, but in deed and truth with what you do according to God's word. As mentioned earlier, Jesus told a similar story in Matthew 25 where he describes the sheep and goats judgment that occurs after the rapture and the tribulation. Those alive at the second coming of the Lord to the earth will be gathered together and they will be divided between the sheep, those who are saved, and the goats, those who are not saved, to evaluate whether they are allowed to enter the millennial kingdom or be cast into hell. And the distinguishing feature is that the sheep, say, are gathered and they want to know why. Why are they on the right? They are believers. And in verses 35 and 36, Matthew 25, the Lord says, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, that's the same word, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. So the sheep are surprised at this because Jesus hasn't been on the earth in thousands of years at the point when this takes place. So they are confused, and they ask Jesus, When did we do this for you? Jesus says in verse 40, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers, again, brothers or sisters in Christ, of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. How you treat others, especially within the family of God, matters greatly. You did it to me. This is not what is happening here in James 2, is it? But it sounds more like Matthew 25, verses 41 to 46, where it says, Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. 
Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. What use is it? Verse 15 and 16 again. If a brother or sister is without clothing, in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? It is no use at all. And the word translated use is only used three times in the New Testament. Twice here in James in verse 14, verse 16, and the only other place that it's used is in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 32, where the Apostle Paul writes, if from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit? That's that word. What does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we will die. Paul is saying, what profit is it if there is no resurrection hope in that context? Why would I risk my life in self-sacrificing ministry and service? Why would I risk my life daily if there was no life after death, no reward, no eternal joy for all this pain and suffering? And the answer is there is no profit or use if there is no resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 13 through 19, in that same context, it says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise. If, in fact, the dead are not raised, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. And here, James is stating that if you say that you have faith but no works, you do not have faith at all, and you are not saved, and the faith that you claim to have will be in vain. It will be of no use. It will be of no profit. This hypothetical illustration that James gives here is meant to shock us, to surprise us, to make us respond with, why and how could you not help a brother or sister that is in such desperate need of care? It doesn't make any sense. How could someone treat a fellow brother or sister like that? And that is what James wants us to recognize. Lastly, let's look at verse 17, the point. The point. Verse 17 reads, Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. So James has used the questions in verse 14 and the illogical illustration in verses 15 and 16 to make the point absolutely clear in verse 17. And the point is, if you say you have faith but do not have works, you do not have a changed life, that profession of faith is just as absurd and illogical as the one who says to the brother or sister who is naked and starving, go in peace, be warm and be filled, and yet do not give them what is necessary for their body. It's just as unbelievable as that hypothetical picture because that demonstrates a faith that has no works, which verse 17 says is dead being by itself. And dead means dead. It is without spiritual life. It is no faith at all. James makes this point very clear throughout this section. Verse 20, which we'll look at in the following weeks. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? And again in verse 26, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. 
A faith that is useless and dead has no commitment to actively and willingly obey God because it has no connection to God. It is apart from the Spirit of God. This faith is not a saving faith that is caused by regeneration, being born again from above by the Spirit and Word of God to behold the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ unto newness of life in Him. This faith with no works has no connection with the love of God and therefore no love for God or Christ-like love for others. It's demonstrated in their life from a heart of true love for God. And this faith with no works is a faith in self. It's a faith in your own works. And this faith in self cannot save you, as we read in Romans 10. Faith in a sinner only condemns, but faith in a Savior receives eternal life. And so if you're without Christ, you don't know Christ, we can't earn our favor before God because we are sinners. We have rebelled against Him. We are disobedient towards Him. We have no merit within ourselves to earn anything before God. God is perfectly holy, righteous, and good. One sin Remember James, even one sin, we are guilty of breaking the entire law before God, rightly deserving of his eternal wrath and condemnation for an eternity in hell. But God, because of his love for us in this world, sent his son to save sinners, to call sinners to himself. But that comes through repentance, that comes through faith, that comes from turning from your own self-righteousness as if you can earn God's favor and be right before him, justified before him. And to turn from that thinking, to turn from your sinful ways and lifestyle and thinking, and to turn in faith to the person and work of Christ, to his righteousness, to his perfect obedience, to his death upon the cross, to his payment for all your sins, and you will receive forgiveness and you will be saved. It's not based upon our righteousness, but upon Christ's perfect righteousness. Faith in a Savior receives eternal life. Faith in yourself only condemns you. If you have faith in Christ, that will prove itself. It will display itself in good works for Christ. Not to save you again, but to sanctify you and to bless others and to have you participate in the Great Commission and to accomplish His will here on earth as it is in heaven. There's a purpose for God saving you and keeping you here on earth. It's to display His glory through your life. Genuine faith works. Genuine faith works, and it works in obedience and love for God. And it is seen in how we love others. It is seen in how we love others. And James really highlights that through how your compassion is, how your mercy is towards those who are in need, especially within the body of Christ. And there are those who are in the faith, believers that are in great physical and monetary need, as this passage, the illustration displays. But generally speaking, in the United States, we don't see this as often within the church. And I would say we rarely see this happening where a believer who is part of a local church gets to that point of need without that need being addressed beforehand and provided for, where this person is naked and starving to the point of death. But does this, but does an attitude and posture of compassion and mercy characterize your life? Does this love for God and others, is it displayed through your actions? Is what you say seen in your works? Is the desire of your heart to please and honor God? Is the reason why you do something motivated by the love, by a love for God? Is the reason for what you do influenced by obedience to God's word? James asks again, what, what use is it? What use is a faith that is without works? 
Well, a faith without works is absolutely useless and dead and doesn't save. It is to point you to Christ. It is to point you to Christ, just as the law is meant to point you to Christ, for you to recognize your own sinfulness and that you can't do anything within your own ability to get to God. It's meant to point you to Christ. But what use is a living, active, saving faith? If you were to turn that around, what use is it? What use is a living, active, saving faith? It is so that you would live for Christ and make him known. It is so that you would live for Christ and make him known, that you would represent and reflect him in this world. This is not meant to bring about doubt, but clarity so that we can respond properly. This is meant to show us the amazing thing about the Christian life, which is the grace of God. That those whom he has saved, he transforms and he displays his glory through their lives. That we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit, Second Corinthians 3.18. And he doesn't just save us. He saves us and he makes us to shine as lights. And we are to let our light shine before men in such a way that we, they may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven, Matthew 5.16. That the light of Christ might be seen today in our acts of love and our deeds of faith. Speak, O Lord, and fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Don't focus on yourself and what you are doing or not doing for your assurance of faith. Hear that again. Don't focus on yourself and what you're doing or not doing for your assurance of faith. Our faith is in the person and work of Jesus Christ, not in our own self-righteousness, our own works. Even after we've been saved, our faith is always in Christ, not in what we do. Turn your gaze upon him. Depend upon him. See your need for him and trust in him and his promises and live for him in obedience to him. James says, eternal implications. What use is a faith if it has no works? Can that faith save him? It is no use at all, and it cannot save you. If you are depending upon your own righteous works to save you before God, verse 14 is very clear. Verse 15 and 16 illustrate the irrationality of your thinking. Verse 17 makes it very clear. Faith without works is dead. It's useless. It's no use at all. It's no faith at all. But the good news is found in Jesus Christ. It's meant to point you to him. So repent and turn to him if you're without Christ. If you're still depending upon your own righteous deeds to save yourself from God's righteous, holy wrath, which is going to be a reality for those who do not turn to him. You must turn to Christ in order to be saved. You must trust upon Christ and his righteousness in order to be saved. And you must live this life to display his glory for all to see and to make him known through our proclamation of the good news, the gospel that saves sinners. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is clear. We thank you that your word instructs us in all of life and godliness. It gives us exactly what we need to hear. allows us to respond properly. We thank you for your grace and mercy and love upon us. We thank you that you have called us before the foundation of the world to be your own. I pray that our lives will be a reflection of your love through our Christ-like love for others. 
that our love would be displayed through our actions and how we live and how we think, how we respond, but also predominantly in how we proclaim the good news. We thank you that your spirit is with us, that you are with us, that Christ is with us, that we are not living this life by ourselves, but by your power, with your aid. We thank you that you guide and direct us through your word. We thank you that it gives us, provides for us wisdom from above, that we may live in obedience to you, and all for the purpose of worship, that we may glorify you for your mercy, for your grace, for your love upon us. We thank you for this time. Would you prepare our hearts even now to partake of communion and thinking about what your son has done on our behalf and the the joy it is for us to be part of this united body that is yours. We thank you. We pray these things in his name. Amen.